Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, folks. It is the 21st of April. This is episode 155, and we're going to have a thinky show today, I reckon. We've got a lot of very big discussions with a lot of very important thinkers, and we're going to put our thinking caps on. Fair enough to say, Pete? (laughs) That is fair enough to say, James. Yeah, two great interviews, Adam Crichton and Chris Berg. Is that why you had one of your mum's scones before the show so that you could get that big brain whirring into action? (laughs) Well, uh, so fun, a bit of a peek behind the curtain for the listeners. I do like to carbo-load just before a show so I get a bit of a sugar hit. So usually I have a croissant just before we record when we're in the studio, but I need other ways of doing it. So mum made some scones. Uh, I'm not going to go into details about how those scones made it to my house, but... uh, Safe to say that they are delicious. So, anyway, mum's scones aside for half a second, we have the economics editor of The Australian, as Pete said, Adam Crichton. We're going to be talking about the economic effects of the uh, shutdown and uh, sort of like the changing a discourse where two weeks ago, if you said anything bad about the lockdown, you immediately were accused of wanting grandmothers to die in droves. And now it's like there's an actual discussion over what are the levels of lockdown we should be having uh, and where does the line get drawn? Now, we're also going to be talking to Dr. Chris Berg, who is Senior Research Fellow at RMIT, also the host of the Looking Forward podcast, which you know I know a lot of our listeners also listen to the Looking Forward podcast, and we're going to be talking about the government's app thing. Now, obviously, Pete and I, the one story that we saw this week that we really cared about was this app story, the government introducing, like, well, not introducing, but like sort of announcing that one of the ways they're going to fight coronavirus is the introduction of this new app, which tracks people's locations and who they've come in contact with so they can be notified. I mean, for civil libertarians, there's about seven different words I just said there that are immediately terrifying. Uh, so we're going to be talking to Chris Berg later in the show about that. So we don't really want to go over the same ground twice. So we're going to, if you really want to listen to that right now, Berg's interview, the time codes in the podcast description, jump forward, then jump back to this because we've got some other good stuff that we're going to be talking about, such as the protests in the States, Peter. Yeah, okay, protests in the States. Yep, no, jumping straight into that. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, okay, so as you might have seen, there's been protests around uh, the United States over the last few days in various states uh, in regards to the lockdown. Now, Trump has tweeted out his support of the protesters. Uh, and people have been saying to Trump, you know, this is they're going against your policy. Um, but he's argued that some of the governors have gone too far. Now, there was a poll reported in the Washington Post this morning that says 60% of Americans don't support the, the protesters. Now, I don't know how seriously you take that because it is from the Washington Post. Um, but it, there, there you go. And I think that's probably about right. Um, look, I think Australia, you know, Australia, this just goes to show that people aren't happy with the lockdown and you can see that um the things like this are going to happen more and more as the pressure mounts uh and i think australia takes its cue a little bit from the united states and people are starting to express their displeasure in the united states and that will eventually flow through to other parts of the world yeah i'm with you like it's such a obvious thing that people wanted to put these protests out as oh look at these far-right extremists look at them with their guns look how stupid they are protesting coronavirus whereas you know, sure, there were people at these protests that did have guns and were probably not there because, uh, you know, for the same reasons that 
uh, Peter and I have sympathy with the other protesters, but there are a lot of people in these protesters who are laid off hospitality workers who do need these jobs to uh, maintain their lifestyle and can't really get by on what the government handouts have been so far. And I have a lot of sympathy for people that are in communities that don't have a lot of high outbreaks. Like, you know, if you're not in a major city and no one, coronavirus hasn't really hit your town, yet still you're not allowed to go to work because it's now shut down. I have a lot of sympathy for you saying, how come my rules, how come the rules apply in my town that should really apply in these major capital cities with outbreaks? Why, why am I not treated a bit differently because we don't have coronavirus here? Exactly right. Now, there is a lot of valid concerns um, that the pro- protesters are raising. And I, I think you're right with that point about how it's being reported. You can see the difference with Fox News and CNN. I just had a, read something this morning where it had a little video on Fox News which reported, which uh, interviewed a gentleman who was at the protest. And he was pretty articulate. He said, you know, I understand that the government's trying to protect people and people are scared, but, you know, we can go back to work with social distancing. If people are worried about that, then they can remain in their homes and that's fine as well. CNN reported that someone had a sign saying, Jesus is my vaccine. So yeah. it's interesting, the different take from the two news networks there. Um, can I just but- point that up? Uh, can I pick that up? The Jesus is a vaccine guy. Because that same guy got uh, bought up on Sky News today. They were talking to someone from the United States uh the uh, United States Research Center or Policy Center or something like that. But anyway, it was on Sky News and they were talking about how stupid that sign was. It's like, uh, yeah, stupid people go to protests on both sides. Breaking news. Like, that doesn't mean that everyone in the protest was immediately going like, yeah, Jesus is my vaccine. You, you yeah. found one person that had that sign and you're like, well, the rest of the protest is moot because this guy turned up, therefore all their points don't stand up. And the people that like, you know, Every side of politics does this. They go, look at this protest. Look at this stupid person we found at this protest. Let's laugh at them. Congratulations on being smarter than someone else. Like, big <laughs> round of applause. I mean, wh- what do you want? Do you want a cookie that you're not the guy with the Jesus is my vaccine guy? Congratulations. Yeah, exactly. Exact, no, you're right. And you can see that flow through in the reporting in Australia. Like, Australians who watch, you know, ABC News and even, even Channel 9 and Channel 7 will definitely be able, be able just to fob this off as, ha, crazy Americans. What a crazy place the United States is, apart without actually having to engage with some of the pretty valid points these people are raising. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like you said, these protests will start happening in Australia if uh, the lockdown keeps going and people, you know, the New- Northern Territory hasn't seen a new case of coronavirus in two weeks and they still have the same lockdown laws as the rest of us from the federal level. I mean, there will be some levels of protest against this in the next couple of weeks, I'd imagine, unless some of the more restrictive uh, lockdown measures get curtailed. Right, and I did notice actually as well, uh, in addition to that, that there were four sheriffs in Michigan who are refusing to enforce the governor's lockdown. Um, so there might even be things like that where maybe police start to not worry about enforcing some of this stuff. But anyway, we'll see how it unfolds. Uh, and my last point I want to make about this. So if you go, people shouldn't be protesting on this one. The lockdown is important. You also need to at least listen to the fact that there are these protests and if they gain momentum and they pressure politicians into just letting the economy rip uh, like a, you know, a quick Band-Aid off... We're going to have a second outbreak of coronavirus. It's going to be just as bad as the first one because, uh, and it would be because people have pressured the government into doing it. You need a gradual easing of restrictions. You need to board in at a good time because if you just let it rip like a band aid, people are going to suffer and we're going to be in the same situation again in like four weeks' time. That's right. That's right. Now, should we move on to our next one, James? Yes. Okay. Uh, all right. So. 
bit of background on this one. So I think this is the biggest story in Australia today is uh, Virgin going into administration, uh, voluntary administration. Now, uh, you know, it, it is a bit more, I'd say, a drier topic than we usually do on the Young IPA podcast, but it is important. So uh, as a way of doing it, I have... Well, you set it up, Pete. Yeah, um, so... Basically, James really wanted to do this topic and I sort of thought, you know, this is a bit the Australian, this is a bit Sky News, I don't know if this is really our vibe, but James is insistent, he cares about this stuff, so I said, look, you can be serious as you want for 30 seconds and then we'll move on. So we're talking about, of course, Virgin going into administration this morning as announced everywhere. James, yeah. what are your thoughts? Hang on, oh, uh, sorry, sorry. I've got to get... Yeah, get, so <laughs> I literally have 30 seconds and then a timer goes off and I have to shut up and we have to move on with the rest of the show. I but feel like I, I can ask you some questions if I want. Okay. Well, that sort of defeats the purpose of the timer, but all right. <laughs> all right. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. Go. Okay. So Virgin went into voluntary administration today. My heart goes out to you if you were affected. That's not fun for anyone. But there's now the... I. The idea is now, should Australian taxpayers bail out Virgin? Now, 90% of Virgin Australia is foreign-owned to begin with. Singapore Airlines, Etihad Airways, and Chinese conglomerates, the HNA Group, and Hansan owning 80% between them, and then Richard Branson owning the last 10%. 10%. Now, why is it that Australian taxpayers immediately need to step in already? Labor pushing this so Qantas has competition because of how pricey flights after were after Antic get went down. <laughs> get rid of cabotage, get rid of regulations to let other airlines That's come it. in if you really want I- competition. I actually gave you a few extra seconds because you were sort of, you know, I could see you were coming to the end, but yes. uh, I gave you 33 seconds. So what's the cabotage point just quickly? So cabotage is basically the regulations that exist to stop other airlines coming in and, you know, the old, you know taking Aussie jobs kind of angle. Whereas mm. if you're worried about uh, Qantas having a monopoly on a, a domestic aviation, if Virgin goes down then the best way to do that is to let other competitors into the thing. It's not to bail out Virgin. I mean, Labor go, we need two, We need a competition between two f- people to bring down prices. Let me just pitch you this, a competition between 10 people to bring down there prices. There, there we go. go. How good's that? that Doesn't that's that sound good, good? I'm glad that we've, just, we've, we've talked about this. I told you it was better than 30 seconds. You doubted me. There's some <laughs> no, interesting good. stuff here. That is interesting stuff. Check it out, people. Now, where are we heading to next, James? Okay, so next up, uh, we're going to be talking to economics editor of The Australian, uh, Adam Crichton, about the economic effects of coronavirus. So let's go to that now. Okay, we now welcome on to the show, Adam Crichton, economics editor of The Australian. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, so with Sydney Morning Herald and The Guardian now running articles in support of easing of restrictions and then overnight, the UK opposition leader, the new one, Keir Starmer, called for the government to end uh, to announce plans to end the lockdown. Safe to say the discourse has changed from even like a week ago or two weeks ago where anything anyone said bad about the lockdowns was immediately hounded. So do you feel vindicated? Yeah, look, actually I do. I mean, I've been overwhelmed with the deluge of the past couple of weeks Largely of support, actually, but also a lot of furious, angry people saying, you know, saying terrible things to me. But just as you pointed out, the uh, the zeitgeist, if you like, is definitely changing on this. And you know, we're seeing governments all around the world, even Spain, I understand, and uh, Denmark, where there's still you know very high infection rates and and tragically still many deaths. Even those governments have decided that they just can't keep their economy severely locked down for longer than say you know five six weeks. I mean, it seems like in Australia, we we just saw this week the prime minister's. Uh, the Prime Minister's press conference, of course, and now he's he seems to be moving very much away from this idea of six months of 
of some sort of lockdown to 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 uh, perhaps maybe in May, the middle of May, which actually I might add, I've been saying to all my friends uh, for the past few weeks, I thought that they would be lifted in May. So I do actually uh, privately feel actually quite vindicated, even though I haven't written uh, mid-May, I've been saying it a lot. And uh, it seems like mid-May will be, you know, will be kind of D-Day. That's right, Adam. Now, you wrote a piece on Tuesday that had a huge impact. A lot of our listeners loved it. A lot of IPA members loved it. It was called, We May Be Overreacting to an Unremarkable Coronavirus. Yeah, well, I didn't choose the heading. Just remember that. I <laughs> know. <laughs> oh, I enjoyed it as well. So how would you say we overreacted? Well, look, I think I was trying to say that we are overreacting now. I mean, I think at the beginning, uh, you know, kind of late Feb, Things were very scary. There were a lot of predictions that this was going to be a Spanish flu, which would wipe out tens of millions of people around the world. Uh, and so I could understand the politics. I think I had a line in that in that column. I could understand the politics of, uh, you know, kind of total shutdown, if you like, even though, you know, maybe I wouldn't have done that, but I could certainly understand it. But now that we've had more and more data coming from around the world in Australia, it seems like it's not as dangerous as we first thought this virus. It's certainly not dangerous for people under 65. Now, look, I know there are, you know, reports out there of, you know, some, you know, there, there, are, there are some tragic cases around the world of people in their 40s having died. But, you know, remember, the world is a big place and, and, and 60 million people die every year in the world. So, so I think, uh, you know, it's wrong to focus on one or two deaths. By and large, it is not dangerous for people under 65. We know that now. Uh, it is for people over 65. I think maybe that, that should lead us to, to some conclusions about how we should should manage the virus going forward. Yeah, I definitely think uh, that the sort of herd immunity thing is like the natural conclusion to all of this. Like, as you say, you can't shut down an economy for six months. Governments are starting to really wake up to that if they weren't awake already. And I think it's now just a matter of like figuring out how can hospitals work through the workload that is going to come? How do we make sure that the old and the uh, vulnerable are safe and the rest of us can go back to work and make sure that the country doesn't stop? Yeah, well, the interesting thing about the health system in Australia, at least, and of course, health systems overseas have clearly been overwhelmed. I mean, we can see that. But but here, from what I'm hearing, and I haven't written articles about this, but uh, just anecdotally, there, there are hospitals with, with, with the most capacity that they've ever had. There's, there's whole wards that have been cleared waiting for a, an influx of coronavirus patients, and they have just not come. Indeed, New South Wales, the most affected state, of course, uh, has something like 5,000 ventilators, maybe 3,500. But anyway, only only about twenty five of them are being used. So, so this idea that there was going to be a swamping of the health system uh, that 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 very pleasingly hasn't happened. But you'd have to say that given there's that capacity there, we we you know that's an argument that, that we should start lifting the restrictions. Uh, because one of the justifications in the first place, I thought, for the restrictions was that the health system couldn't handle the infections. Well, that's no longer an argument, at least in Australia, it's not. So, so that should give us uh, cause to, to uh, you know, to tentatively lift some of these restrictions. Adam, you wrote um, over the last week that Sweden and Japan, for instance, have not imposed lockdowns yet have far fewer deaths as a proportion of their populations than Spain, Italy or France. What, les- what lessons do you take out of that? Yeah, well, look, they certainly do. And look, I, I mean, I'm, I haven't run any statistical analysis, but if you just cast your eye over all the countries and their death rates and whether or not, just broadly speaking, they have locked down, it, it, it is an extraordinary struggle to, to see a correlation between lockdown and fewer deaths. Uh, and I think that it's going to be very hard for statisticians going forward to tease out that, actually, because, as you just said, there are these extraordinary outliers where you have, you know, countries like Japan and Sweden where they have not really locked down at all. And indeed, they're not the only countries, by the way. I mean, I think, I think Taiwan and South Korea are also uh, versions of that. 
and they don't have anywhere near the same level of uh, infections and deaths as France and Spain. Now, look, you know, maybe it's a timing issue. Maybe those other countries didn't introduce the right time, but it's starting to split hairs at some point. Yeah, so you're the... You're the economics editor of The Australian, someone who's very across the economic effects of what is happening. Now, even if we get to uh, May and the restrictions begin to ease up, uh, things are already pretty bad right now. So, how, how like you're the economics editor, how bad are things economically out there right now? Well, globally, they're, they're very bad. Uh, I'd probably say globally worse than, than for Australia. It seems so far the damage in the US, you know, the world's biggest economy, is, is just horrific economically. I mean, 16 million jobs lost in just a few weeks. That's just, that's just amazing. And we saw this week with retail sales and industrial production falls that haven't been seen since, since the Second World War. Uh, so that looks very, very dire there. Um, well, I know overnight uh, President Trump is talking about restarting the economy. I think that's, that's a positive thing. That'll be... Uh, that'll be seen well, I think, by by, uh, by business and households. Uh, for Australia, look, even if, you know, May, the restrictions start to be lifted, I imagine they'll only start to be lifted. There'll still be a lot of restrictions. Uh, so I still see, you know, kind of a very significant contraction in economic output in the second quarter. That's that's the conventional wisdom now. Uh, you know, it'll be about, you know, 9 or 10% if you look at what, what, what most economists are forecasting. That, that will be the biggest contraction since the Great Depression in the early 30s. Now, of course, you know, things have changed a lot. You know, this is a government-mandated shutdown. It's not been caused by the business cycle. Uh, so that makes this very unusual. Uh, so the, the positive side of that is that when the government lifts the restrictions, hopefully things just suddenly bounce back. Now, that's a big unknown. We don't know. Certainly, the longer things are shut down, the less likely they are to bounce back uh, quickly. Lots of small businesses will, you know, will, will basically go out of business the longer the lockdown is in place. They won't be there at the other side. Uh, now, of course, the government's spending a lot of money to, to, to kind of keep things in hibernation. But this is a big experiment. We've never seen a government try to do something like that before. So, you know, we're, we're in the dark a bit. We don't know kind of how permanent the damage will be yet. So, Adam, uh, in one of your articles, you're saying no one's saying we should just let her rip and open everything up again straight away. What other things that you should... Th- that you think should happen first and in, in what order and things like that? Well, look, I live in New South Wales and here, you know, you can't go to the beach. You can't be outside with three or four people having a picnic. You can't sit on the park bench. Uh, we have this ridiculous inconsistency where, where illegally lots of retail shops are allowed to be open. Uh, department stores are allowed to be open. That's a good thing. But of course, there are other rules that say you can only be outside if it is essential. So, I mean, I thought of actually just just on the weekend going to JB Hi-Fi to have a look at some some stuff, and I thought, well, they're open, but actually, it's illegal to go and have a look because it's not essential. So yeah. those rules are totally inconsistent. Um, so certainly, I think they, they need to be made consistent, and I think it should be okay for people to go shopping if they want uh, to stores that are legally allowed to be open. So I think just those common sense things uh, right away. I mean, look. I can understand, you know, limiting large gatherings to 50 or whatever it is for, for a while. That, that's not a huge, you know, a huge constraint in the big scheme of things, but certainly limiting it to two is an enormous constraint on our lives. Uh, so I think I would, I would really like to see that lifted soon. Oh, and also yeah, I had schools. I mean, schools, I, I, I just do not understand why there are so many children at home, students at home, when all the evidence, as Greg Hunt keeps saying, the health minister, is that there is, there is no argument for, for keeping children at home. Uh, so I don't know why the state governments are, are encouraging that or implying that there's a good argument that they be kept at home. Well, this all for me leads right into your article today. Now, we're recording this on Friday. So uh, your article 
on Friday this morning said that a fifth of Australians feel they dep- uh, say they feel depressed most or all of the time, according to a new weekly survey, which tracks attitudes to coronavirus crisis. Now, you can say that a lot of uh, that anxiety and depression might be related to coronavirus itself, but I don't think that... Uh, I doubt it, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think it's people who have lost their jobs, people that can't visit their friends and family, and people that uh, can't do the things that give them meaning and joy in life. Yeah, look, I think, I I mean... The question didn't drill down as to what was the source of the anxiety, but uh, look, some people would be worried about the virus, although I imagine a lot less so than were a few weeks ago after they'd been reading the press and just realising that for the vast bulk of people, this is not a huge risk. Uh, but certainly the anxiety of losing your job, losing your income, having your hours cut, that is that is huge. And certainly in journalism, uh, kind of as a journalist, that's that's something the media, you know, quite understandably worry about too. I mean, we're our industry is obviously heavily affected by the shutdown, as are many industries. So there's a lot of anxious journalists out there. So you've uh, wrote an article the other day about this may cause the biggest population decline in Australian history. That's really interesting uh, viewpoint. What's the, what's the impact of that? Well, look, yeah, just the basic outline is the at the end of Christmas last year. So at the end of at, at the end of last year, we had 2.4 million temporary visa holders in Australia. Conservative forecast is that will fall by about 600,000 this year, which is a huge amount. Now, if we have, you know, natural increase in population of maybe 200,000, that's still a 400,000 uh, decline. And it's, it's a 400,000 decline too in students and temporary workers. So uh, that will obviously have a massive impact on the housing market, for one, for rents, especially in, you know, pockets of Sydney and Melbourne where there are lots of students and lots of foreign workers and backpackers and so forth. Uh, which includes actually where I live near, near King's Cross in Sydney. It's going to be completely uh, decimated as, as, as there's you know, this huge exodus of young, uh, young foreigners. I mean, I think it's a very sad thing. Uh, I notice it's, it's a bit, it saddens me a bit, but, but some Australians are actually quite happy about the exodus in, uh, in people. But so, so, so this, it definitely splits people, you know, whether this is a good or a bad thing. I think it's a bad thing. Uh, certainly it blows out of the water the government's ability to, to grow the economy uh, kind of easily because if they don't have net overseas migration, which they've been relying on, frankly, for years to mm. power the economy. I mean, the next three years they had in each year penciled in 270,000, 270,000, 270,000. That's, that's just not going to happen. So it's going to have a massive effect on the budget. And, you know, one, one good thing is it's going to force governments to, to think about how they can grow the economy productively rather than just rely on more people. There's nothing wrong with more people, but you can't just focus on that. And I think that's what governments have been doing in Australia for far too long. Yeah, it's a huge challenge. Uh, Adam Crichton, Economics Editor of The Australian. Check out uh, all of his work that he's doing over there. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks very much. Okay, uh, thank you to Adam Crichton, Economics Editor at The Australian. Sorry, let us go to some heroes and villains, and then we've got Chris Berg at the other side. Sorry, heroes of the week, the Grunt the Big Freedom Snort. People that uh, have been on the show for a while know, know the snort well if you're new to the show. Grunt the Pig was a pig, uh, is a pig, still alive, still kicking, still being mm. a pig. We uh, in over in Wangaratta, uh, mm. I believe it was, yeah, Wangaratta, and he got fined by the council for walking around being a pig. Apparently, uh, that's illegal. So, you know, th- if, if there's no greater voice for freedom in the world today than a disobedient pig, I'm, lo- I'm yet to hear it. So, the Grunt the Pig Freedom Snort is someone we uh, award for people that have stood up for freedom and against uh, bad things in the world. So, Pete, who is your hero of the week? Uh, well, James, last week I gave my Hero of the Week to the ABC. This mm-hmm. week, another left-wing figure, Jacinda Ardern, You've New changed. Zealand Prime Minister. Uh, 
Jacinda Ardern. A lot of people say Jacinta. That's incorrect. It's Jacinda. I don't think I've ever spelled her name correctly in my life. (laughs) It's. I reckon it's so easy. Anyway, she is my hero this week. Prime Minister. She has announced that her and her other ministers will take a 20% pay cut, lasting six months, to show solidarity with those affected by coronavirus. She said. She said, James, it's important that govern the government's most highly paid politicians show. Get this leadership and solidarity. Imagine that. Now, not, not only uh, is she and her ministers and the opposition leader taking a pay cut, but also the Director General of Health in New Zealand, Dr. Ashley Bloomfield, has said that he will take a pay cut too. So it's not just the politicians over there, mate. It's also the bureaucrats. We've been banging on about this. Not banging on about this. We've been making this point eloquently for a number of weeks. <laughs> Us and the other people. Good save. Good save. Seamless. Very no one would have noticed that one. <laughs> is that... You know, the whole the government is, you know, in many circumstances, rightly putting people out of work. The least they could do is make bureaucrats take a 20% pay cut and take a pay cut themselves. We talked last week about the Victorian politicians who took a pay rise, and there's been a pay, and the bureaucrats in Queensland have attempted to also get a pay rise. Uh, it's completely unconscionable that highly paid polit- uh, bureaucrats and politicians shouldn't be taking a pay cut. And Jacinda Ardern, you're my hero for showing leadership and solidarity. Uh, yeah, Pete is, uh, he's a man of principle, okay? Some days he's going to see the ABC as a hero, some days he's going to see Jacinto Ardern as a hero because he's a man of principle and not a side. Yeah, that's right, exactly yeah. right. I'd play the ball, you know, not the man. Did you just yeah, say Jacinto, by the way? What did, what did, Jacinda? I think, Jacinda? Yeah, I think you just said it wrong. I think you just said oh, okay. well, I, I, pre- I spell it wrong, I pronounce it wrong, but I agree with you, she is a hero because, yeah, we're either all in this together or we're not, and we're either all feeling the effects of coronavirus or we're not, so yep. it's really good to see politicians and senior public servants in New Zealand uh, take a hit That's it. for solidarity with people that do not have a job right now. Exactly right. That, that said, that, gen- that well-being budget will never work, Jacinda, give it a miss. I thought you were saying that said it is an election cycle, so we might see more things like this. But that would be cynical. Uh, Now, my hero of the week is, uh, I think, a a development on a hero I've already handed out. So Elon Musk handed out, uh, he said he was giving a 1,000 ventilators to California hospitals, and we sort of made him a hero a few weeks ago. And, you know, Californians knew if they turned down the ventilators, they were going to get caught a pedophile, uh, as is the Elon Musk (laughs) playbook. The playbook. It's a playbook. But anyway, so we've got an update on this. So CNN on April 16 tweeted out, three weeks after Tesla CEO Elon Musk said he had obtained more than 1,000 ventilators to help California hospitals treating patients infected with coronavirus, the governor's office says none of the promised ventilators have been received by hospitals. Now, that would be some bad PR for Elon Musk if it were true. Not Unfortunately, good. it were not true. Elon Musk tweeted back, what I find most surprising is that CNN still exists. Uh, and then this became a big story. Governor Newsom in California, you know, the governor of the whole state, it, uh, it came out and said, I told you a few days ago, it's likely out of a thousand ventilators this week. It was a heroic effort. Uh, Elon Musk even like tweeted out some email correspondence between the Tesla people and people involved in health in California, showing that not only the ventilators had been delivered, that they passed testing as well. So... CNN took a big loss. Now, CNN, it doesn't stop there, all right? So CNN, they're already being shown to be fake news on this one, but it keeps going. So CNN executive Matt Dornick uh, refused to go down quietly with this one. He tweeted out, weird to attack CNN for what the California governor's office said, especially when your own spokespeople at Tesla didn't respond to a request for comment. Seems like your outrage should uh, be directed at the entity that made the claim, not the one that reported it. Are you new to this? So very, you know, 
he's got his jukes up, he's fighting. Uh, Musk responded to the CNN executive, perhaps you aren't aware that Twitter has a search function. The hospitals themselves acknowledge the receipt of the ventilators and then send a list of hospitals that have benefited from his company's ventilators. So CNN should have taken the loss early. They've now taken yeah. two different losses. Sometimes in life, you need to learn how to take a loss. Now, Pete, so, you're, yeah. a man that's, Pete you're a man that's taken many losses in his life. What advice would you give to CNN about how to handle loss with dignity? Well, sorry for talking across your punchline then, James, because I did see that coming eventually. But um, the you have to learn to quit while you're behind. You've taken a bloody nose, fine. Retreat, lose the battle, but then win the, the larger war. No, I think yeah. Elon Musk, you know, he's been villain a couple of times, hasn't he? And now he's been hero twice, so he's just one of those characters. Yeah, well, there we go. So, hey, am I not playing the ball as well as uh, Peter Gregory? This is a exactly show of principle. Right. Show of high principle. Because you haven't got a lot of personal affection for Elon Musk, you sort of he, I, he gets on your goat a bit. I, I think I'm like, you know, everyone wants to go to space. Why? Why does Elon Musk get to be the guy with all the big <laughs> ideas? I want a rocket ship to Jupiter. Do I get the same sort of media love as Elon Musk when he says yeah. I want a rocket ship to Mars? With all due respect to your efforts to go to Mars, I think Elon is tipping in a bit more money and effort than you. Yeah, but both of us have been to Mars the exact same amount of time. So I'll Ooh. believe it when I see it. Whack. All right. Well, let's get on the villains. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. That's such a big sledge after we've just made him hero. Anyway, let's go to the villains. <laughs> you made uh, me do it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, don't sue us, Elon. Okay. Villains of the week. So this is footage of a fake nudie run for the Extinction Rebellion. As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. There we go. James loves that clip. It is a fake nudie run. None of those people are nude. As a result, we call people... We've gone people... from a high-principle show to nudie runs. Yeah, no, exactly. Right. Oh, a fake coaster. nudie run. That's the point. Uh, anyway, so they are the fake nudie run Extinction Rebellion Award each week for villainy and fighting against freedom. James, who is your nominee for this week? So this kind of goes over the same ground that we were talking about when we talked about the US protests against coronavirus. So Patton Oswalt, comedian. I actually like his comedy. He's a pretty funny guy. He's some pretty good stand-up albums out there. I've got pretty much all of them on Spotify. His Twitter, however, is basically insufferable at pretty much all times. I don't know why I still follow it. But uh, on April 19, I did wake up and check Twitter and I saw that Anne Frank was trending and I thought this cannot be good. This, there is no way this is trending for a good reason. So, Unless there's some uh, kind of anniversary. Okay. And that's still, that's you know not a great thing to have. But anyway, Anne Frank, the number one trend on Twitter and it's because of Patton Oswalt. So here's what he tweeted out April 19. Anne Frank spent two years hiding in an attic and we've been at home for just over a month with Netflix, food delivery and video games and there are people risking viral death by storming state capitol buildings and screaming open Fuddruckers. Now Fuddruckers is a restaurant chain in the US so he's basically just saying uh, let them eat cake. Like this is our 21st century 2020 coronavirus equivalent of Marie Antoinette saying let them eat cake. I was it's wondering pathetic. what... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was wondering what Fuddruckers was, so thank you for teaching me that. Yeah, so does anything better symbolise like the far less abandoning of poor people than you like Fuddruckers and not the $30 cheese I get at the grocery, so therefore you're stupider than me and you should listen to me why uh, all these lockdowns are a good thing. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly and him right. going so like, we've got Netflix food delivery and video games. Great for Patton Oswalt, but there are people in those protests that cannot afford Netflix food delivery and video games, and they're wondering where the next paycheck's going to be. So it really is like, he could have tweeted out, why can't poor people have nice things like I do? 
Yeah, he could have tweeted that. And the other thing is the Anne Frank thing has been done to death. It's not like like he feels so smart that he invented that, but literally as soon as yeah. we got put in And he's, lockdown, is his point, we can only ever protest things if it's as bad as Anne Frank. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. There you go. <laughs> Which is... Right. Yeah, anyway, sorry, Pat Oswald, <laughs> you're a villain. That is Have a, a villain, tweet. Pat Oswald. What? Where can people find his stuff? What do you mean? The tweet? No, Pat he's like... Twitter. His, his comedy... On the internet, I don't know. Just Google it. <laughs> no, mate. Yeah, the internet. Usually we give people a plug, but I guess you know, not a villain. He's not as some struggling too big comedian. He's been famous for twenty years. Support your uh, struggling indie artists, people. All right. So my villain <laughs> like is. Like Pat Oswalt. He's been in a hundred movies. Yeah. Well, I've never, I've never heard of this guy, but apparently he's famous. Anyway, my oh. villain. My villain, James. I'm talking Good about Lord. the UK police. The UK police, there's a few instances I'm going to run through. Dame Cressida Dick. Is that how you spell, is that how you pronounce Cressida? Uh, probably. Cressida Again, I'm still Dick. hung met, up on Jacinda Ardern. She is Met Police Chief. She's come under fire because she was spotted leading a round of applause on Westminster Bridge in breach of social distancing laws. It was one of those weird, creepy round of applauses for the NHS. James, why are the police organising mass gatherings? So there's a lot of these going on around the United Kingdom. Uh, where okay, so we all respect that NHS health workers and uh, nurses and doctors and all that stuff—they're doing a great job. A lot of support from the pub- public, as they should. I'm not sure why, in addition to that support, police would then, in large numbers, gather outside hospitals to sort of piggyback off that support. Yeah, I don't know. I I kind of to me like the outpouring of appreciation for people in jobs that don't often get the same sort of public appreciation like everyone getting around grocery workers everyone getting around you know bin men are now getting shouts out and hospital workers is a good thing and i'm sorry if that turns me into a soy boy but i like it no no that's not what i'm talking about i'm not talking i don't mind that at all what i'm talking about is dozens of police officers forming additional gatherings outside first of all like as we saw in Melbourne, uh, aggravated burglary has reached a 10-year high in some suburbs. So there's lots of crime going on. It's not like they've got nothing to do, but it's just this idea of we cannot have mass gatherings because people will die, but we're going to organise uh, additional mass gatherings. So that occurred. She's my first one. The second one uh, is, is, is it just another one at South End Hospital last week. Dozens of police officers uh, formed these gatherings to clap uh, the NHS workers at a place where 106 people have died of coronavirus. I don't know if that's the kind of place you should be going unless you have to go there. Uh, and of course, the other one we found was a UK policeman was found doing this during the week, saw roll the tape. Sit in your car, shut up. And if you want to get to me, and book in your chest now, something like that, then fine, I'll lock you up. We'll I'll do that, shall we? Wrong. I'll make something up. Public order. Screw up to a police officer. Do you want to do that? Who are they going to believe, me or you? Who are they going to believe, me or you? So, yeah, threatening to make something up against someone on the street is not something that the police should be doing. So, overall... Just say he was UK going police, to a yoga class. Yes. Yeah. That guy looked like the kind of or guy... exercising with more class. than three people. Yep. Okay, so what's so that, that's my villain. All right, sweet. Uh, let's go to an interview with uh, Dr. Chris Berg. Okay, we now welcome back onto the show after, you know, a pretty lengthy hiatus. So welcome back, Dr. Chris Berg, host of the IPA's Looking Forward podcast and also a senior research fellow at RMIT. How are you going, Chris? Really well. It's The only important thing is that I did come back. That's that's all. 
That's what I say. It's uh, yeah. Sorry, I've just dropped my mic. So just making sure everything's still recording. Uh, we run a tight ship here at the Young IPA Podcast, Chris. This isn't like looking forward. Uh, but anyway, Chris, let's talk about it. So Scott Morrison says one of the keys to fighting coronavirus is this new app being developed that can trace people who've been in contact with someone with coronavirus, give you an update as to whether or not uh, you need to self-isolate. Uh, it was mandatory for about three hours, then it wasn't. Uh, it doesn't track your location, but then it also tells you who you've been in contact with at all times. So what exactly is going on here? Yeah, so I mean, the idea of having a contract contact tracing app is not a bad one. Contact tracing right now is one of the most powerful tools we have um, uh, to try to manage coronavirus infections. Um, but right now it's done completely manually. So it's literally um, uh, people in the Department of Health making phone calls to people that you may have been in contact with if you um, test positive for um, COVID-19, having some tech solution to that, or at least having that as part of the picture is a um, an idea that's been adopted by a lot of governments around the world and some of the most successful governments at tackling this, like Taiwan, like Singapore, like Hong Kong and so forth. So it's, it's not a new idea and it's not surprising the government's going to do. It's got a lot of really challenging privacy problems and I've got some concerns about the government's policies, but but some other things that they're doing um, not bad with as well. So, Chris, uh, I noticed that uh, one of the things the government said about this was that they would make sure they deleted it when the pandemic was over. Like, that's going to be really easy to figure out when this pandemic is over. Are you concerned that uh, we've seen the government in the past abuse data that they've kept off people and use it for different things than they said they were going to use it for? Are you concerned about that? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, that is, as you as you probably know, that's the history of privacy and particularly in the tech space in Australia, that um, we're told that a policy is um, introduced for one reason, say um, something that no one would disagree with, which is tackling something like terrorism or tackling um, child abuse or something um, along those lines. And then suddenly we realise that it's being used, in fact, for regulatory policy, for um, local councils managing. This is the story of data retention. This is no doubt going to be the story of the encryption debate that happened um, 18 months ago. And um, I, I'm incredibly concerned that a poll, uh, that a, uh, that a app like this could be misused in part because the government just has a terrible track record on this. And uh, while I wish we could, I don't think that we can give them the benefit of the doubt. Now, in that context, any um, claim made by the government that it just promises to do something is, is not a credible promise. And we need much more than that. I'm worried that the government thinks that a promise would be sufficient to mollify our concerns about privacy. I think they might, I, I think we need much more serious privacy protections in any tech solution. And um, uh, and I'm worried that we're not going to see them in time. Yeah, uh, I, I, let's not skip over how bad the government has been in the past. Over, <laughs> I rarely uh, skip over that, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, but let's <laughs> let's let's unpack this a bit. This is the same. Uh, you know, we've had uh, some Western Australian Fisheries Board had access to people's metadata for a while there. Like that was something that's come out recently. Yeah, to, and to give the government all this power to track people, and I get it. Coronavirus is serious. Technology is the way we're going to be able to stop uh, the spread in the community. But given the government this much power to track people, how many other government agencies are going to have this? Well, that's right. So um, I was very involved in the data retention debate, twenty thirteen to twenty fifteen or so, um, and the constant refrain from the government was 
do you, you know, do not, do you not care about the risk of terrorism? Then it was, do you not care about the risk of terrorism and serious child abuse? And then suddenly it became, do you not care about terrorism and serious child abuse and other serious crimes, of course, and, and, and other crimes such as that. And um, we were promised that regulatory agents wouldn't have access to this data. S within six months, regulatory agencies had access to that data. Um, the government just is not trustworthy on that um, question. So now th there is a way then, or, or, there is a way forward in this. I'm not suggesting that we just holus bolus oppose every proposal that the government makes. I'm just saying that the barrier that they need to surmount for us to trust them on these technologies is much, much higher. And they need to explicitly tackle the fact that they have lost our trust in the privacy space over the last decade. So you don't rule out this as a as a tactic to fight coronavirus at all. You just think it should come with certain controls so that we make sure it's not abused. Is that would that be? I think correct? it's more than just controls because I don't want there just to be an ombudsman or something like that. I want to do things like I want to be able to observe the source code, which apparently the government is um, offering it as an open source app. So that's really that's really good. But more importantly, I don't want any central authority, whether that's the federal government or the state government or even um, private companies to hold the data themselves. Now, there's a lot of solutions to this challenge that allow us to do the sort of contract tracing that I think the government really uh, thinks that we need to do, while also protecting our privacy simultaneously. And um, there's a lot of uh, really exceptional research being done on this. There's exceptional um, uh, design models being built. Google and Apple have brought, um, come together to build a privacy preserving contract tracing app. I'm not saying that their model is perfect, but it tells you that there's lots of really strong liberty protecting approaches the government could take. When we see the app they release, we will know whether they have been paying attention to any of that research, that development, that enormous entrepreneurial tech activity. Yeah, I don't know a whole lot about the Google and Apple tracking apps, but is that uh, the same sort of problems, but it's just a private company over the state? Or are you more confident having Google and Apple think of something than you are a government body? Look, as I understand it, it's not the same. It's not like a um, company would be keeping it, whereas a government would be keeping it. It's much more privacy preserving in that sense. And um, I, I would not at all be willing to, um, I would not be comfortable with the government doing this. Um, uh, uh, as much as a private company would do this. I'm, I'm, I'm not comfortable with either of those situations. Um, but it does show you that there's really exciting research and there's really exciting development being done here. Um, and so what, I, what we need the government to do, our government, is to follow best practice and um, perhaps even do some pioneering thing. Now, the, the chances that they're going to do that, I, I worry, are worryingly low. Um, but nonetheless, it, when the government comes up with a solution and if it is unacceptable, unacceptably um, uh, privacy violating, then we should know as citizens, as voters, that they had declined to choose a better choice. They had declined to protect our privacy when given the option of doing so. Does this sort of, you talk about this uh, a lot, the, um, so you work at the RMIT Innovation 
no, Blockchain Innovation Hub. Is that the correct name? That's the one, Blockchain Innovation Hub. And, and what I, a point I, you guys make a lot, which I really think is important, is that the thing about some new technologies like blockchain and like what you're talking about with regards to this app is that they don't require us to demand our rights back from the government. We can just protect them and not give them to them in the first place and still achieve the same outcomes. Is that another example of this, do you think? Yeah, yeah. It, sorry, it well could be. Um, uh, and we have the chance to simultaneously protect our rights and protect ourselves against the risk of infection from from this disease uh, from this virus. Um, so this is a, 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 a as you say, this is a nice pivotal moment where we see governments have a choice to make: Are they going to protect our privacy and protect us against um, uh, harm? You know, this is a thing that government should be trying to do. Um, or are they just going to ignore our liberties while um, tackling the immediate challenge in front of us? Yeah, there's another point to this, which is like, let's say you uh, think that the government should be doing this. This is the sort of stuff that's going to fight coronavirus. You trust the government to do this because they're ultimately responsible to the people. There's also the idea that hackers are going to get to this information as well, which is something like... Uh, there's all those reports that came out over the last couple of years about the amount of uh, cyber attacks on the Australian parliament. I mean, that's pretty useful information for people that don't want to see Australia succeed as to where, where their population is at all times. Is that another concern? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right, James. So um, often we're told in privacy debates in general that um, uh, it's okay because the Australian government is a relatively good government um, by international standards. It's very democratic, so we can vote parliaments, uh, the parliaments out if we don't like what they're doing. Um, so what is the real concern? You know, um, if they collect information about you, they're going to protect it. They've got some really smart people. Um, the bureaucrats, by and large, aren't that corrupt. Um, so uh, why, would you, why would you be con- concerned about them protecting it? Now, um, I, I, I don't really agree with that because um, individual bureaucrats tend to violate your privacy, even if I may trust, you know, Scott Morrison personally or something. Not that I would. But, um, uh, but nonetheless, um, the risk is not necessarily that your own government is going to violate your privacy. The risk is very potentially what are the other governments going to do? Because, of course, we know that governments have a um, habit of hacking each other, habit of tapping each other's phones. Once we create these massive databases, it makes a honeypot for which other governments, other bad actors, maybe um, uh, online criminals and so forth, will be able to target and will be able to target in their own interests. The goal in any situation for us as citizens in a republic of technology, which we are, should be to minimize the stuff that we're sharing with everyone. Um, And when we do share it, we should insist on the highest standards of protection. We should not just accept, well, you know, Australia is a democratic and relatively free country, so 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 what have you? Um, I don't I don't think that's how we should approach these problems. I, I I certainly hope that the government isn't assuming that we will accept a contact tracing app on those grounds. So Berg, it's fair to say that you are what could be described as a big liberty guy. You know, over the last few years, <laughs> I think that's a massive term. liberty bloke. Yep. Loves, <laughs> yes. loves liberty. Loves Anyone the who's liberty. followed the Australian <laughs> uh, political debate over the last decade would know that. Um, have you found now one of the very few kind of instances where it's maybe justifiable for a government to contravene people's normal liberties is in the case of a pandemic? Have you found yourself 
what take different positions on certain things during the course of this? Um, have you noticed that at all? Yeah, look, I mean, of course. Um, and there's very few things that I would have the government do. One of them is national security, so it protects us from invasion. And the other one would be um, genuine public health problems like a pandemic. Um, not public health problems in the, uh, we should drink less alcohol, because um, uh, those aren't things that have huge externalities on other people. Um, traditional public health is things like manage epidemics, drain swamps so that you know we can get rid of um, uh, mosquitoes with illness, uh, diseases and so forth. So th this is well within the government's purview on almost any libertarian um, uh, framework that you can think of. Um, but it does put you in a strange position, which is like, yes, the government should act hard and fast right now. Um, and I've been in this situation thinking about how the government should respond to the damage on the economy of this pandemic. And the thing that I'm stuck on, and we've spoken about this on Looking Forward, the thing that I'm stuck on is that the government has made the decision to shut the economy down. It's not like in the global financial crisis where a lot of firms made bad decisions. They invested poorly um, uh, and, and, and there had to be a sort of economic reckoning where those bets that they made were turned out to be bad bets. In this case, the government shut the economy down. Social distancing shut the economy down. The government has said to, say, airlines, to pick a random example, to, that um, no one, really international travel is shut down because um, we've got to be quarantined for two weeks on both ends of the trip. Um, uh, so in that context, I think of the extraordinary things that the government has done as, well, that is the price of fighting this pandemic. Um, I don't like it. I hate the idea that I might be arguing to um, bail companies out or, um, or expand the welfare state. But that is the price where we are at right now, given the decision that the government made to pursue a public health agenda. What I'm thinking about and what I think we should be thinking about as libertarians or conservatives or classical liberals is how do we make sure that the economy that comes out of this crisis is a free market economy? That's the sort of work that we're doing at the moment. Yeah, if you pitched me support, like if you pitched me JobKeeper stuff six months ago, I'd have a very different opinion to what I do today. And I'm with you, like the libertarian liberal people that are out there concerned about the future of the economy, like when this is over, the pushes for less red tape, the pushes for less government intervention in the economy is going to never be stronger. I want to bring this back to something you brought up at the start of the interview, which is that this tracking app was used effectively in Singapore. Now, I also saw that like uh, only 40% of people in Singapore had signed up to it and it was voluntary and you know, without wanting to make broad uh, generalizations, I think Australia is much more uh, skeptical of handing over powers of state than people from Singapore in, in general terms. So I reckon this app is going to be very downloaded by very, very few Australians. Do you see it becoming a bit more mandatory in future if only like 5% people take it up? Yeah, so I want to clarify that we, we th there's been some reporting that they're going to use the Singapore app or base it on the Singapore app. We don't know. We Right now we are debating, in fact, the entire country is debating an app that doesn't exist. Yeah. It hasn't been built. Um, it is apparently going through some privacy um, process at the moment. Um, uh, the Singapore model has been relatively successful, but it's not just because there was an app. 
Um, uh, it's because there's, you know, very, very high um, state capacity in Singapore. It's just a city, a, a single city. It's not um, uh, like Australia is. So, so there's some really substantial differences. Um, and it is also worth pointing out that we're doing much better than Singapore is. In fact, Singapore seemed like it was holding um, uh, the infection rate down relatively well, and it sort of spiked up again. But you're absolutely right. These apps, um, if we didn't care about privacy, if we didn't care about individual freedom, we would say these apps are effective the most when 100% of people or everybody who has a smartphone has the app. That is absolutely not going to happen in Australia. And not only because you know we care about our privacy, but also there's no way that you're going to get 100% of Australians who own a cell phone, so a smartphone to download an app. Under or just 100% of Australians to do anything. Or to know to know that it exists. Yeah. So, so I mean, that's obviously not going to happen. So I hope when the government is thinking about the contact tracing um, application and how it fits in to the general strategy, I hope they are counting on the fact that there will be very, very few people who have it and there will be very, very few people who have it initially. Because even if they say, oh, well, you know, by, by December, everyone will have the contact tracing app. Well, it'll be an entirely different ballgame in December. I, it, I, I will point out one final point on that, though. Everything that we have done has been pre-contact tracing app. Um, the countries that I mentioned before had their apps up and running a lot earlier. We have driven the infection rate down to, uh, I mean, it's what day is it today? It's um, uh, Monday today. Um, we've driven it down to one in Victoria today, one person. Um, that's in the absence of a contact tracing app. It is very possible that this comes too little too late to have a meaningful impact on infection rates. Very interesting, Chris. Now, you mentioned this just before about how we set our economy up for the future. You guys have a book out called Cryoeconomics. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. How to Unfreeze an Economy. When is that out and what's it about? Well, we made up the word, um, Pete, so really your guess about how to pronounce it is as good as mine. Um, <laughs> uh, so <laughs> this is the this is what you can do if you're an academic. You just make up words. It doesn't cool. matter. And everybody's like, oh, it's a very important word. Um, uh, so, so it's being published with the American Institute for Economic Research, um, and I'm hoping it will be out in the next um, week or two. We'll be talking at great length about it over the next couple of weeks, obviously. Um, our argument is... is basically that um, we need to start thinking about how to get out of this crisis. We're not tackling directly the question of whether lockdown's a good idea um, or when precisely should we get out of lockdown. We can all have our own individual views about that. But the fact is that the governments have put us into lockdown and they've crashed the economy as a result. What do we do now? Um, uh, that problem is compounded by the fact that they've done two things. They've tried to freeze the economy in place so they've gone into this hibernation strategy in Australia, it's called. This is the idea of keeping everybody in their job, the JobKeeper um, uh, uh, policy, just until we ride the crisis out. So they've done that. They've also massively increased government spending as a consequence. So not only do we have to unfreeze the economy, not only do we have to return to work, we need to open up the restaurants, we need to pay for the extraordinary sums that we've incurred, much, much more than in any financial crisis over the last you know, seven decades in Australia. And this is the same for countries around the world. So our argument is that um, our book is about how to unfreeze an economy, recognizing that it's the idea of freezing economy is basically 
a fantasy, but it's also how will we be able to pay? How will we get the economic growth on the way out to return us to prosperity and to repay the extraordinary sums that we're committed to spending? Chris Berg, uh, Dr. Chris Berg, sorry. We will uh, be listening to you on the Looking Forward podcast out later this week and also get Cairo Economics or however Pete decided we pronounce that word, how to unfreeze an economy. <laughs> Cairo Economics. It's Cairo economics, economics, all right. How to unfreeze an economy. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Thank you too, Dr. Chris Berg. And uh, we'll now run through. It's been a big show. We've done some high thinking. We've done some serious thinking, some learned thinking. Let's have some fun with some stories and made us laugh this week. Now, Pete, this is a segment uh, that you created and I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, so we were, we've, there's been so many finds. We've been looking for stories for the show. There's been so many finds that we decided that rather than giving them each their separate story, we'll just give them my favorite finds for the week. Now, I haven't yep. discussed with you this, but I want to call this segment Pete's Not Fine. I had This Is Not Fine. I like Pete's Not Fine. Uh, I thought yeah. you'd be disgusted. No, because I also had this is not fine, so it's hard for me to turn around and talk. <laughs> like, I made it about myself. I, I'm sorry. If it's a pun on the word fine, it's going to be a dad joke. They, I think we just both have to accept that it will be a dad joke and then move on. All right, let's do it. So for the for the duration of this virus, you know, we're gonna we're gonna do Pete's not fine. Now I'm gonna rank these in order of how funny I think they are, uh, mm-hmm. which means which means I had to lead out some that were pretty not sad. They were sad and not funny. Uh, and James, you can tell me if you think I've got the order right. Number one, Sunbury teenager who broke social distancing rules five times in 10 days. Persistence. Persistence uh, is this number way, one like. as in this was the funniest or this are we counting so, up from three? Yeah, up from three. Well, yeah. So when right. I said one, I meant three. Yeah. So this is the least funny, but of the yeah. short list of funny. Sunbury yeah. teenager fined five times in 10 days. Yeah. So this is for, this is for, this is for bronze. Number two, kid, poli- Tory kid police. Lost the party. <laughs> Just 18. When I say teenager, he, he or she is 18. Uh, Victoria Police have handed out 65 fines to those attending an eight-year-old's birthday party for breaking social distancing measures. They were f- police were forced to break up the party after a tip-off from a passerby who saw parents and children gathering in the yard of a Bayside property. So by, by my count, if we're giving people $1,600 fines for this stuff and there were 65 people, that's just over 100 grand for Vic Pole end of season trip. You beauty. Uh, was it sixteen thousand each or twenty six thousand between the entire party? There were so I'm assuming they're sixteen hundred dollar fines. Yeah, I saw twenty six thousand party uh, just based off the uh, sorry twenty six thousand dollars for the whole party, not a hundred thousand. Okay, I didn't see that, and that was my rough calculation. So, <laughs> your what you <laughs> saw the in the news is probably yeah. right. If that's, that's a bit rough happened. for party entertainment, by the way. Just hire a clown next time. Don't get police to show up and hand out $26,000 in fines. Well, it was a passerby. I mean, what kind of passerby sees a group of kids? And Anyway, we've bagged passerbys enough. Now, number three. Yeah, I hope that passerby never sees a school. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If, if, they're, if they're really that. scared about kids gathering near, par- uh, near adults, I just don't look at a school. Yeah. No, don't worry about it. All right. Now, the final one. This is my favorite. 43-year-old. This is New South Wales. 43-year-old... Fairfield man was pulled pulled over with a passenger in Potts Point while driving a McLaren. I'm no car guy, but apparently McLarens are good. He said to the police he was driving a Woolloomooloo, great name, to buy petrol. Now, police issued him with a warning and the driver then changed his story to claim uh, to claim that driving was a form of exercise. And then when the police didn't buy that, he said, the driver, uh, he said to the police, do what you want, mate. I don't care. This $1,000 fine won't hurt with my $15 million. 
So he's got a few things going on there. First of all, he lied about going to get petrol. Then he said exercise. How good is that? Driving's exercise. And then he just said he's rich and he doesn't care. Yeah, well, uh, I'm going to give it to the birthday party. I also saw there was a... Uh, Someone called the cops on someone, I think it was in South Australia, because there was like a burnout party and there were 13 cars that were there. Not, they weren't caught doing burnouts, but they were all fine for breaking social distancing because they were all in cars gathered together. But it strikes me that if you're in cars, then you're not in a crowd because you're all in a car. Was it like, people? Do they, just, do they find traffic? <laughs> was there more than one person in the car, maybe? maybe well, maybe, but like, you know... Are you, like at that point, you're just finding traffic. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, I, th- I I vote for the uh, uh, birthday party because interesting. One. I think the if first you... guy, you, you know, uh, well, I'm not going to say it. So, <laughs> don't know what I can get away with. Anyway, let's move on, shall we? Yeah, let's move on. All right, so uh, all right, so Malcolm Turnbull's book is now the thing that uh, people are trying to talk about when they're not talking about coronavirus. I uh, won't. Be that in, I'm not that interested in what Turnbull has to say. I think I speak for what well, seems to be the majority of Australians because the book is already on reduced price, so they're struggling to move copies. And one of the reasons is, fittingly, this is the most leaked book in Australian history. I know six people who read the book and none of them paid for it. Yeah, okay. What kind of people are we talking about here? Because I know someone in Scott Morrison's office got caught reading the book, hacking. Uh, I'm just talking, well, I'm not going to like rat them out in a public <laughs> forum, but safe to say people with a keen interest in politics and now reading Scott, uh, Malcolm Turnbull's book, they haven't paid for it, uh, which, you know, for the Prime Minister that fought against leaks is kind of ironic. Uh, there's now a move to chuck him out of the Liberal Party based on some of the revelations in the book because obviously he's just uh, having a go at every which person that has uh, wronged him. Uh, such a move against one of the Liberal Party's staunchest supporters. Where, where will Malcolm Turnbull go if he's kicked out of the Liberal Party? I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. He'd be right. so sad. He'd be so but sad. He's got no allies on the left that he could possibly go to. Yeah. Look, I think. Pro- oh, what's that? Sorry. I was going to say, like, he's definitely planning to hand out how to vote cards all over Wentworth next election, and now yeah. that's that's gone. That's it's yeah. tough for him. He's such a salt of the earth Liberal type. Well, to me, Malcolm, this book reminds me of a simpler time, James, when, you know, leadership battles were our major story. You know, it sort of harks back to the good old days when they were just knifing each other and we all had jobs and it was great. Yeah, bring back sports rorts. I miss sports rorts. Yeah, exactly. Sports rorts. Remember, remember when our biggest problem was like the, a dunny in, uh, footy club in Kalgoorlie having an extra dunny for no reason? Yeah, there's like an onion headline that gets wheeled out for this, this sort of stuff. Uh, they made it a few years ago, but it's like a nation yearns to care about stupid stuff again. Yeah. I really yeah. want to care about stupid things. He's still not happy with Matthias Corman, though, is he? Uh, yeah, he said Matthias Corman was the reason that it, uh, it all went down. So, mm. I don't know. I, I've given this book as much oxygen as I can, so I'm not going to read the book. I doubt many people are. And, uh, you know... Uh, it's it's sad to see Australia's. We've already reduced prices for Australia's great communicator. The guy that could cross political divides is already having to sh- uh, knife the price of his book. That's right. Tough time, tough climate to put out a book. Anyway, so right. James, do you want me to tell you a story that you'll enjoy? Yes, I do. <laughs> Let's end on a good note. Segway of the decade. Okay, Australian Academy of Science, James. The Academy of mm-hmm. Science from Australia has put out together a database. Uh, 
COVID-19, it's called, sorry, the COVID-19 Expert Database with the aim to provide a mechanism for governments, the business sector, the research sector and other decision makers to easily access the expertise they need to inform their decision making. Now, that seems like a pretty valid thing to do. Great way to uh, to find out more about this awful disease because we need to. Now, Just get the big minds together. Get them, exactly all, right. get them all on a database, get them thinking, get them learning. Let's, let's get some products, uh, let's get some stuff done. Now, and as, as we know, James, we have to listen to our experts. Now, a bit of primary research, primary research from Kian Hussey at the IPA. Oh, I thought we were going to get some from Peter Gregory. <laughs> it would be an absolute lie and plagiarism for me to steal this from Kian. Uh, and he's noted at the IPA that 28 experts on gender have signed up. 28 uh, experts on gender have signed up for the Australian Academy of Science. It's good to know that that is the case. Listen to those experts, people. Listen to those experts. Well, uh, I'm not too keen to attack people who have a big platform that absolutely don't deserve it because uh, people in glass houses should not throw stones. But I will point out, we did (laughs) learn the other week, Peter, that coronavirus is a gender issue. So I think these people do need to be listened to. That's right. That's right. We sent a few articles about how it affects... Because uh, women are, you know, primarily in nursing sectors, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. It's affected women worse than men. I, I yeah. think we claimed that it's not a competition, but if it was a competition, we were winning because but more men have died. Now we're defining it as gender. So I think you're playing. Maybe they need to add a 29th expert, one Peter Gregory, PhD. <laughs> I should sign up. I should sign up. Anyway, <laughs> just thought people out there would like to know there is a database if they need some experts. All right, sweet. If you, uh, for all of your questions about it. So that is it for the show this week. Thank you to Adam Crichton and Dr. Chris Berg. Now, a bit of housekeeping at the end. We've yep. got something very fun for Friday. And Pete, you've been the man pushing for what we're doing something what we're doing on Friday. So why don't you get to break the news to our loyal listeners? Oh, well, this is a nice surprise. Yeah, no, I, I have saying, because I love doing the Young IPA podcast so much, that we should do more shows. And for now, well, for this week... I think we're going to do two shows and the other one's going to be on Friday. Possibly slightly less, uh, what would you call it? Less um, high, high learning and high thinking, which is this yeah, week's exactly show. Right. Exactly so, right. you know, Pete and I are about to give each other hernias based off how hard we've been thinking for this week's show. So Friday is going take to be a, a bit down. looser. Yeah. Exactly right. And so, then yeah. uh, next Tuesday, uh, I'm not going to give it away, but big guest. Big guest. That's next Tuesday, isn't it? I thought Bolt's big gone guest. a week early here. But then I looked big at the date. Guest. Really big guest. I don't know when we'll start announcing that, but definitely not now. But we will start big announcing guest. that. Check it out. Make sure you don't miss that one. Big guest. See you guys next week. No, no, no. Friday. <laughs> <laughs> After all that. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>